2020 may have sown the seeds of long-term distrust for the nation's electoral process. Welcome to Delmarva Today. This is Don Rush. Much has been written about what then-President Donald Trump did and the strategies inside the administration. But what did it look like out in the hinterlands? There is a new book entitled The Steal, the attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. It's co-authored by Mark Bowden and Matthew Teague, and we have Matthew on the phone this morning. Welcome to the program. Hi, Don. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that really fascinated me was the idea that you really looked at this at the grassroots level, both in terms of the folks who stopped uh, the overturning election, but also the people who were pushing it on the grassroots level, beyond just simply somebody like uh, Giuliani. Tell me a little bit about why you took that approach. Well, we went out into the country because that's where the election actually happened. Um, the idea of invading a building in Washington, D.C. to overturn the election is a little bit ridiculous because that's not where the election actually happens. There's no central building. Uh, it happens in a decentralized way, which is one of the strengths of the system, is that it happens in the states and the counties and towns throughout the country. So we decided to go out and find out what, what really happened where the election took place. And some of it is harrowing, and some of it gives hope. Well, I'm going to turn, by the way, to the people who really believed that this was being stolen, um, particularly uh, those people who sort of looked out and saw a lot of things going on, and then suddenly uh, they saw something uh, nefarious. I think, particularly, I'm thinking of, for instance, Greg Stinstrom, amongst others, as well as uh, Leo Hoops in Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Tell me a little bit about that, and, and what do you make of the fact that he saw all of these things and he seemed to read a lot into them? Well, a lot of people were persuaded when they showed up you know, to as election observers or whatever role they were playing. Um, they were not just coming to see what was happening. They came to see what they expected. And they had been already told what to expect by their president. Um, there's fraud, you know, going back to 2016 and before, uh, Trump had talked about you know, how much voter fraud there was, and there's just not. But when people showed up to observe, <laughs> The most innocent, innocuous sort of uh, behavior, sorting envelopes or whatever it might be, looked nefarious because people had come with that expectation. And when you actually sort of start to take apart the allegations and examine them, you quickly realize there's nothing there. Um, I mean, none, none, at no point was there any, any widespread fraud whatsoever. Why do you think it is that um, that they had this this view that they couldn't get beyond it, even when they were shown that uh, there was nothing nefarious? Well, I think propaganda is powerful. Disinformation is powerful, uh, especially when you're telling people something they sort of want to hear already. When you're affirming people's beliefs, when you say the guy you wanted to win really did win. People tend to go along with that because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel smart. It makes them feel like the, the side that they're on is the winning side. So who were these people? I mean, people like Leo Hoops and, and Greg Stintrum. Um, were they ordinary people? What, uh, what, what do we make of them? Yeah, for the most part, they're just ordinary people. Um, thankfully, there's ordinary people on the other side, too. Um, and so what you had was this sort of back and forth between people um, making allegations and people standing up and saying, wait, no, that's not true. Um, and one of the things that surprised me most about that was that I went into the reporting, into the research, expecting this to be the story of red versus blue. And that's really not the truth. A lot of the heroes of the book, almost all of them, 
were Republicans and even Trump supporters. It's just that they were part of the process and stood up to say, wait a minute, that's not true. What you're saying isn't true. That's a lie. So it's not red versus blue. It's, it's truth versus lie, which is a division uh, that runs through every human heart. Everybody has the choice of saying, wait a minute, this is the truth. That's a lie. Uh, and that gives me some hope. So on the other side of it, of course, you had, as you say a moment ago, um, a lot of folks who stood up. Some of them were Trump supporters. One in particular, by the way, Ruby Freeman. She was in uh, Georgia, Atlanta. And uh, apparently she's now filed some kind of lawsuit about all of this. Tell me a little bit about her experience, uh, because it seemed to me that the kind of uh, coercive, uh, almost potential violence, uh, as it were, was really hanging in the air in all of this. Yeah, she, uh, Ms. Freeman is an older lady. Um in Atlanta, who normally makes her living selling handbags at a kiosk in the mall, but she decided in uh, 2020 to help out with the local election. Um, she had the time to do it, and for her trouble, she was treated to harassment and threats and all sorts of online things. She had people showing up, knocking on her door um, there uh, outside Atlanta, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a danger, really, in, in the aggregate, when you spread it across, across the population. It's a danger to our democracy when the people who are implementing the democracy at the ground level uh, become harassed. That's doing it, right? One of the other people, by the way, is Cheryl Guy, who was the long-term, long-time uh, clerk in uh, Antrim uh, County in Michigan, uh, who made an honest mistake, and yet that mistake then got blown up into this uh, talking point. Yeah, Cheryl Guy is the county clerk in Antrim County, Michigan. She is herself a Republican. She voted for Trump. Uh, but on election night, Cheryl is not a very tech-savvy person, as she says. She accidentally, in her tabulation, shifted about 3,000 people from the uh, Trump camp in a column of votes to the Biden column. And she, within a few hours, realized what she had done and corrected it and even came forward and said publicly, I've made a mistake. I shifted these votes accidentally. Um, there's nothing to it more than that. Um, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter at that point because immediately in that window of a few hours, it had been noticed and taken up by this enormous political machinery uh, that came to bear on, on her and on her county. We had private jets flying in the night, uh, bringing people in. Trump's teams came to go through her office. And... She ended up having her life turned upside down. People harassed her. People whose very birth certificates she had signed called her un-American. These are her neighbors cursing her and things like that. And so she paid a great price for coming forward and saying, no, no, it's just me. It was just my mistake. Um, but she did tell the truth. Now, of course, we have Rudy Giuliani who sort of sweeps in, and his organization, his efforts seem to sweep up all of these uh, so-called discrepancies, the reports, disgruntlement uh, by a number of these people. Tell me then a little bit about that. I mean, at one point, he, I think he presents it to the folks in Pennsylvania, and they seem to then come out to be nothing at all. It, that's correct. It, we call it in the book, we call it the blunderbuss strategy. Uh, the blunderbuss was this sort of colonial-era weapon, sort of precursor to the shotgun. and You could load into it bits of glass, rocks or whatever and just sort of blow it out uh, the front end, but it wasn't very accurate. 
And that was the same strategy that Giuliani and company took here, was that they collected up all these little stories and allegations and loaded them in and blasted them out. And it was very persuasive just in volume and repetition. It didn't matter that none of it was accurate. None of it was true. Oh, one of the things that, by the way, I noticed uh, Peter Navarro, who was on, uh, I think it was MSNBC the, the other night, talked about how he had had this big, long examination of all these things that had happened and needed investigation and so on. What do you make of that? I mean, and, and he said he had thousands of pages. I mean, what, what's going on here? Well, I mean... I mean, you, you talked about George Soros, we know. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, if anyone has evidence, obviously we welcome it. Just as in the nation, if we welcome evidence, bring it forward, bring it to court. The problem is, is that continually, again and again and again, these things are brought to court and exposed to oxygen and exposed to sunlight. They sort of wither and die because it's clear there's not actually any evidence there. So what do we make of what happens to a lot of the people who kept the uh, kept all of us in check and uh, got us the correct vote um, a lot some of them are leaving some of them been are being challenged certainly Brad Raffensperger and in, uh, in uh, Georgia the secretary stayed there um, and then even on the local levels a lot of people who believe in the idea of a steal seem to be trying to they get into that actual process of, of counting the votes that's true and there is concern and on, among some people that uh, People are seeking office uh, so that they can manipulate votes and control the election, things like that. I think the answer uh, to that engagement is just also engagement. I think that if you don't like the way that your government is being run, then that you should vote otherwise or, or take part in it. And I, I'm not being flippant there. I really feel like participation and engagement is the key to this because the people who stood up to Trump and said, no, no, that's not true, even though they were Republicans and Trump supporters, they stood up that way because they were part of the process. They saw how votes were being counted, and so they recognized this information when they saw it. They recognized lies, and I think that's true for all of us. If we engage the process, go volunteer, take part in it, understand it, it gives you an immunity to that sort of disinformation. Do you think there's enough pushback, another, uh, enough energy on that side of it, or is there more energy on those people who think that the election was stolen? <laughs> there's a lot of energy, <laughs> a lot of energy on both sides. I, I think that uh, a lot of Americans have sort of run to the extremes, which is uh, unfortunate. Um, and I think we're, we're in the middle of it. It's difficult to know what the outcome will be until we get to our next round of elections. What, by the way, role does the potential for violence, or even violence for that matter, have, do you think, uh, in terms of an impact on particularly a lot of the folks at the grassroots level who do all this counting um, will have? I mean, we see a lot of images, obviously, of, of uh, some of the, the far-right militia folks and so on, which certainly has to have its effect. But I mean, do you think the potential for violence is going to have an impact on um, how we process out this election? Well, I think, it, I mean, violence is obviously frightening. It could frighten people away from the process, and that's not good. Um, it's dangerous for democracy. However, the idea of violence, the idea of manipulating both gerrymandering or lying or bullying, these are all very short-term uh, strategies. 
in a system of government that depends on the plurality of Americans being in agreement, appealing to the majority of the voters, um, the, the party that does that is going to be the one that wins. And if you're depending on the short-term strategies, you're doomed. Well, and Senator uh, um, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader, um, he said that he would be very surprised if somebody actually overturned an election like that, even at the uh, Capitol level. Do you think that's do you think he's being honest or do you think I mean, what do you think of that confidence that he seems to have? Well, I think that if he's talking about January 6th sort of style running into the building <laughs> and wearing your, your helmet and, and just throwing things around and stealing envelopes. and <laughs> No, that's not going to overturn an election. That has no hope of doing that. That's not how the system works. Um, there is a more insidious and less talked about version of that we cover in the book, which is what happens out in the country. And that is more dangerous if you have people in place who are willing to manipulate the vote or to simply take orders from the executive branch that's a real threat to democracy. Do you think that, for instance, the state legislatures might uh, take that act? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I wish I had all the answers. <laughs> I wish I had all the answers. The, the, the truth is that we we can't really know maybe until we see it in action. Uh, finally, what are your final thoughts about the fact that this is the anniversary uh, coming up of um, – the assault on the Capitol. What do you think that means in terms of this nation? Well, it's been it's been a year um, for both sides. Um, the side that perpetrated it has had a year to regroup, to reformulate, and sort of uh, use it as a rehearsal. On the other side, um, where I think most Americans are. They've had a year of sort of outrage and horror in, in rejecting that mindset, um, and hopefully uh, the government has uh, taken those lessons to heart and will not uh, let it happen again. We've been speaking with Matthew Teague. He has co-authored a book with Mark Bowden. It's entitled The Steal, the Attempt to Overturn the 2020 Election and the People Who Stopped It. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this morning. Yes, thank you. This week marks the one-year anniversary of the assault on the nation's capital by Trump supporters. And President Biden marked this day with a fiery speech in Statutory Hall on Capitol Hill. He called out the former president, who he said put himself above the interests of the country. We now turn to Salisbury University Emeritus Professor Michael Laughlin. Take a look at the anniversary. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. So, first of all, what are your own memories of that night uh, as we all certainly on here on the shore, watch these mob uh, essentially attack the Capitol. Well, like most Americans, I suspect I, I was sitting in my living room watching uh, the inauguration, rather the, uh, uh, yeah, the, vote, the, count. the vote count take place um, and was astonished to see what was happening in terms of the, the beginning of the crowds going up the steps and and clearly, with the police, it began to be overrun. And and I uh, remember the reporters, of course, being quite surprised about all of this and 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 uh, stumbling essentially to try to come to grips with what in fact was happening. I think there was it was pretty clear that this was not supposed to be happening, uh, but there was not an immediate sense about what in fact we, we would call this thing, which I think has continued to be the case. 
In terms of what you thought it might mean, did you have any question as to whether or not the vote count would be completed? Or did that even occur to you? Initially, I, I, I had, had little doubt that it would be. The count would go forward. Um, and I think one of the lessons that we've learned here is that how fragile the situation actually was. Um, and then moving forward, the, the necessity of making sure that precautions are taken such that this will never occur again, so that, that the interruption of the vote count, which is so critical for the transfer of power from one administration to the next after an election, um, can take place uh, without uh, interruption. Of course, Joe Biden this morning um, gave a speech, as I indicated, a fiery speech, and he really he called out the former president. Uh, amongst other things, he said, for the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as the violent mob breached the Capitol. He went on to say that Trump values power over principle because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's and America's interest because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept that he lost. Are you surprised that the president called out the former president directly? In this case, uh, no, because I think the evidence is emerging and that, um, and I think the definitive report from the select committee uh, in Congress will be the defining moment when we get a much clearer picture. But I think the evidence is, is emerging that um, Mr. Trump as president uh, was in fact attempting uh, through various means to try to stop the vote count and try to stay in office. Uh, the most uh, uh, inter interesting case, of course, was the pressure on his vice president, uh, Mike Pence, to in fact try to use his position as simply the counter of the votes uh, to put aside or at least delay the vote count going forward. Um, and the evidence is coming out that, in fact, this was what Trump and his allies were attempting to do, to try to place pressure on that vice president to uh, do what no vice president has done previously. Uh, and clearly, uh, that was the danger to our democracy. So I think that the president, President Biden, was uh, in, his, in his right. And in fact, um, it was necessary for him to call out. It's, it's um, much too late now for us to mince words here. We need to move forward with what, in fact, was happening, that this, this particular president, Mr. Trump, um, is an authoritarian, and in terms of his perspective, power matters most to him, and democracy, the integrity of the vote, of course, is clearly unimportant to him. There was a lot of ceremony on the uh, Capitol Hill today. We saw the senators, as a matter of fact, commemorating this, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, Absent was, of course, uh, any Republicans uh, on the floor today or even marking this day. What do you make of that? Presently, the Republican Party is c clearly um, controlled uh, in many ways by, by the former president. And that politically, what um, Republican politicians are now doing is walking a very fine line. Uh, on the one hand, um, attempting to, to tr perhaps try to p mark out an agenda that they have been working out previously, but making sure they don't cross Trump. And 
because they need the Trump base. The Republican base is the Trump base at this point in time. And um, hence, any kind of opportunity where they can uh, seem to be in support of the, this former president, um, they'll, they'll go to that point and, uh, and avoid any confrontation with the president. I saw at one point uh, one of the senators, I believe, referred to the idea that silence was tacit approval. Do you think that's true? Yes, I do. I think that the um, the again for for, it, it, for for many of the Republican politicians, do they actually believe the election was stolen? They don't, um, but they know that um, the base, much of the base, continues to believe that's the case. And so they will play to that, uh, to that base, so long as they see it as politically um, important to them. Um, and of course, we will see whether or not that is the case in the midterm elections coming next fall. A couple of polls uh, I was looking at. CBS poll said that more than half of Republicans view the insurrectionists as uh, defending the freedom, um, and that uh, four in ten uh, in the Republican Party. Um, did uh, not see the um, the uh, insurrectionists as necessarily violent. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, particularly one-third of the Republicans, uh, as I understand it, think that violence may be okay uh, to defend democracy. I mean, where, where are we with this violence? And I know we saw, obviously we saw in the Capitol, uh, but obviously we could also see and did see some in case of some of the vote counts out in the hinterlands in the, uh, and where the votes are counted. This is probably one of the more disturbing trends, I think, um, within the Republican Party at this point in time, and that is the, um, the, the, the disregard for essentially the integrity of the vote that took place in 2020, but also the, the embrace then or the idea that violence um, is now tolerable and uh, f to, uh, for in our in, in our politics um, and this is part of the danger I think that we see going forward is to, it, to the extent that Republican politicians uh, do not denounce this kind of support then they move uh, our politics in, in a in a disturbing direction I think moving forward now the Attorney General Mer uh, Merrick Garland has uh, said that he was going to hold people responsible for the January 6th attack on the Capitol Make them accountable. We've certainly seen a large number, hundreds actually, uh, who have been charged, certainly who were involved in it. Um, do you have any faith that beyond those who directly participated in the violence, who directly participated in the invasion of the Capitol, above them, uh, that they will ever be held accountable? Garland made a speech just recently where I think his intent was basically to say, you know, the way prosecutors work is you have to gather your evidence first and that you move from the ground on up. Um, and I think the implication was that he was attempting to respond to the criticism that the Department of Justice hasn't, hasn't gone after the big fish yet. Um, um, we will see. I think, uh, I think the evidence is so far is that the Department of Justice has in fact prosecuted people, has, has held many to account at the present time. Um, and so I still have at least some hope that the, the ringleaders, because it's pretty clear that part of what happened on January 6, 2021, was planned. Right? 
Um, part of it was unplanned with the mob mobsters who were there uh, without any kind of overall plan in their heads. But clearly part of it was planned, um, and the responsibility for the violence does rest, I think, with Trump and with many of his, his allies. Uh, and my hope would be that the Department of Justice will prosecute accordingly. How far of the chain do you think it might go? The, the, uh, <laughs> I know you're not a legal expert here. But. Uh, yeah, I must, yeah. I'm, I'm not a legal expert. <laughs> I, I think the, it strikes me that the, the evidence is pretty strong that, I mean, I think the impeachment, the impeachment of Trump um, last January, I think the with the Democrats who presented the evidence there, very strong case that this goes back with to Trump, if and for if for no other reason than even when the, the mob was going forward, Trump did nothing to stop them. So at the very least, it was dereliction of duty, his responsibility for for protecting the institution of the Congress, um, was was his. And he, he, in fact, held back. He did not stop it. Um, and I think that that is, um, he should be held accountable for that. Do you think that they, the legal system is inadequate to address this uh, political um, process that we're looking at? For instance, uh, even if one, say, calls up the Secretary of State in, uh, in Georgia and says, gee, can't you find me the votes? Um, it's not like, and it was, he was unsuccessful in doing that. It, it, does that cross the line? And I mean, an attempt as opposed to, say, for instance, uh, actually being able to consummate it. I mean, we saw this, for instance, um, in the uh, in the Mueller report, in which uh, it was very clear that uh, the president tried to influence the direction of uh, the investigation that was taking place. Um, are our institutions just inadequate to really bring people to account for their actions outside of the politics of elections and so on? Yeah. No, that's an excellent question. I think, and, and the I, I think, for for us who are look from outside the legal system, who are not experts in the legal system, in, in light of of the Mueller report and 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 of course this uh, the January sixth event, we we seem from a common sense point of view that that these clearly that 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 a president has overstepped his authority and has violated his oath of office. In so many ways, that that surely um, uh, some legal remedies can be uh, put at hand beyond the impeachment question. I mean, the impeachment should have gone forward, and the Senate should, have, if they had done their duty, they should have voted in favor of impeachment uh, to convict him and therefore hold him, prevent him from running for office again. But criminal charges, sure, it would seem to be um, uh, reasonable as well. And in the light where we don't see it yet happening, the answer to your question simply is, yeah, we need to have better laws if, if indeed a president can do these things and get away with it. One of the calculations I can imagine is if, for instance, the attorney general were to decide to, say, indict the former president, that's not just simply a legal act. It also is going to appear as a political act. Doesn't that complicate the problem of Merrick Garland actually taking a case against the former president very much absolutely and i and uh, we, we should not be um so naive to think that political considerations are 
are not going to be in the mix. And, and I want to emphasize that we're not just simply talking about the politicians at the top, but there's a whole slew of people, a large segment of the American population who, A, think that obviously he won, and B, certainly would react sharply to it. So there's a political dimension beyond just simply the leadership. I think that's absolutely true. So so that one, one danger, of course, in pursuing a case against uh, Donald Trump is to anger the base that is so still remains in his influence. Um, and uh, as a political matter, even if you were able to, even if, if the Justice Department were to indict Donald Trump for some, some crime and pursue a prosecution, right, would that in fact, in effect, uh, anger that base and gin up that base um, that would strengthen Trump politically, uh, ultimately, because a prosecution may go forward, but they may, may not be successful and may not prevent uh, Donald Trump from running for re-election. But even if, it, uh, even if the former president weren't able to, say, for instance, get uh, re-elected in 2024, it certainly would politically rip the country apart, irrespective of his own personal fate. I, I think that's a consideration, to be sure. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, if if the evidence is is there to prosecute, um, and the Department of Justice fails to prosecute, then we learn another lesson. That is, um, there's going to be accountability for those without power, but not with, for those with power. Right, such as the people who stormed the Capitol, but Hence, not the absolutely. people. Absolutely. So where is our democracy then? We've been speaking with Salisbury University Emeritus Professor Michael Laughlin about the one-year anniversary of the uh, storming of the Capitol. Appreciate you taking the time to My speak pleasure. with us. My pleasure. This has been Delmarva Today. I'm Don Rush. Thanks for listening.